Well, we're at the 16th Sunday of the year, and um, I, uh, we, we come across uh, some pretty interesting and well-known parables about the church uh, in today's gospel. Uh, we have the well-known wheat and tares, uh, there's also the mustard seed, and also the leaven. Um, so, uh, to just look at the mustard seed and leaven real quickly, because I want to spend the bulk of time on the uh, wheat and the tares, but... Um, you know, the mustard seed isn't very elevating. It's not a very high level, of, you know, it's not like a mighty oak tree or a, a, a giant, uh, you know, cedars of Lebanon or something. It's a, it's a lowly mustard seed tree. <laughs> yeah, it might grow to the size of a tree, but most of the time it just kind of looks like a bunch of weeds, you know, not very attractive. And isn't it interesting the Lord would use that as an image for the church? And, of course, the, the basic message is clear enough that from a small beginning can come a great, a great and thriving plant, if you will. Uh, but um, I'll leave it at that, But uh, except to say that the, the image, though, of the mustard tree being so humble is important for us because I think sometimes we like to, we prefer the big, the more noble ones like the Church of the Body of Christ or the Bride of Christ. And that's all true and it's biblical. But I think we need these humbler things too, you know, like how the Lord calls us his sheep, not his pride of lions or herd of horses, mighty horses, but just old sheep. Uh, and there's this, these humble images of the church help us to remember that, you know, we're not all that. First of all, the main reason we're not all that is because I'm in it. You know, I'm in the church, you know. So somewhere in there we have to kind of get, get a little more humble at times and see things more humbly. Um, we're not always the mighty, from a worldly point of view, the mighty thing that we might like to think of ourselves. And um, there's a lot of lowliness in the church. Hmm? Yeah. And also we see with the image of the leaven being mixed into the dough that it's interesting here. Okay, so again, once again, maybe an image of the hidden dynamics of God building up the church. Uh, he kind of goes into the bread and uh, kind of in a hidden but a clear way raises up the dough. Um, all right. Uh, but I think also to look a little bit there, it's, it's interesting that leaven, everywhere else in the Bible that this image is used, it is, it is uh, an image of evil or of uh, corruption. Jesus said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. You know, the idea when Passover came around, get rid of all that leaven out of your house. In other words, you know, it is, it's, it's meant as the image. There's nothing evil about yeast itself. They would use it for their bread. But the point is that the image is not a, not a good one. It's, it's, it's an image for corruption. Now, maybe then for us, and that'll link us to the first uh, parable, which we're going to look at in more detail, is that in the church... Um, this whole batch of dough, there is leaven, and God permits some of it, and somehow it helps the church grow, and is part of the his mysterious providence that there's going to be times, Jesus said, scandals will inevitably arise, but woe to him through whom they come. But they'll inevitably rise, and God can write straight with our crooked lines. You know, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. It was evil what they did. Joseph had to finally say to them, don't worry, my brothers, you intended it for evil, but God used it for good. He shouldn't have to, but he can so maybe that's the more broader image if we if we take up the idea that leaven normally in the bible except for this one place is sort of used as an image for corruption for sin okay but that does lead us then to the first and the longer parable which is um uh parable of the wheat and the tares now the kingdom of god is like like a field and into that field you know are sown wheat, but then comes along the weeds. Where do they come from? We're going to look at the details in a minute, but I think that we need to do a little prelude to this, because, you know, the question is, we know that in the church, there are saints and ain'ts. 
there are saints and sinners. And we, uh, what to do about this? Hmm? You know, if you just declare the church a place for the perfect, I guess you and I are out. What are we doing here, sitting here watching this video? You know? um, but um, if, uh, what, but what are we to do with it then? Because there are going to be sinners in the church. There are going to be troubles and scandals. And uh, what do we do? And when do we do it? And how do we root it out? When do we root it out? Uh, how do we do it best? Um, um, you know, what's the way to correct and find the proper balance between correcting the sinner without, you know, kind of making the thing so uh, egregious, I mean, um, making the whole, uh, you know, the, the whole levels so impossible to attain that no one could really be a member of the church? Where do we find the balance? And when do we correct? How do we correct? And so on. That's what this parable kind of leads us to reflect on. And, you know, let's, let's be honest, y'all, we do not have the balance right today. I mean, my goodness, well, let's just start with the clergy abuse scandal. I mean, I mean, how many times did bishops just kind of wink at a fault and overlook things? And um, some did that with malice, some just out of weakness or maybe a false or naivete. But it's a bad, a lot of people got hurt because we didn't root out some of these problems. Um, and we're faced with that. Um, but now suddenly we have the balance right, and we're just correcting the right sinners in the right way and everything. No, no, you know, and there's still not just the abuse scandal. Hopefully we're beginning to get some clarity about that. But uh, other things that go on in the church, you know, that go on awfully uncorrected, you know. And I think that we have two problems today in the church regarding getting to this question of finding the balance uh, between uh, about correction and, and um, its place in the church. The first thing is that today is too often, almost never, done, and that's why I say we're out of balance. And when it is done, it's very asymmetrical, and that's the second problem. So the fact that it's almost never done, well, you know, you've got a uh, a certain priest, James Martin, who runs around uh, uh, spouting a lot of half-truths about the church's teaching on sexuality, and uh, I'm telling you right now, he's even down with that transgender stuff, and I mean, he's kind of lost his way, and, and yet he's still welcomed with joy at the Vatican. He has private meetings with the Pope, and, you know, never mind that the Pope himself has said the transgenderism is diabolical. But he welcomes him, he's welcome. And so, and yet Bishop Strickland is under investigation for God knows what. I mean, it, it sounds like the, just nothing, it's a nothing burger, but I don't know the whole story. But, but, but my point is that certain clerics just seem to get welcomed and promoted, even when they're openly dissenting. See, there's another newly appointed cardinal in this country who runs around saying women should be ordained priests and uh, that uh, gay marriages should be, uh, you know, celebrated in the church and, uh, well, you name it. I mean, you know, we've got a whole long list of stuff, it's a number of things which are just downright heretical. And yet he's made a cardinal. And other very faithful bishops who toe the line and, and, and are very clear and stay biblically within you know, they teach what, what the church has always taught are just overlooked and even criticized. Like I said, Bishop Strickland is under investigation. This is not, you know, and then again, you know, we have all these roll out the red rugs for <clears throat> people, groups that are dead set against the church's teaching. The LBGTQ, yes, but other things too. Uh, uh, many very virulently pro-abortion people are welcomed at the Vatican with open arms and uh, but boy, if you want to say the Latin Mass, you're in trouble. You're going to be punished. You can't go into our parishes. You have to go out to the peripheries. Everyone else, they've got to bring them in from the peripheries. But you Latin Masters, get out there. Go to the periphery. And so, again, it's all very asymmetrical. And people are frustrated, and I get, I get calls all the time. And um, 
I get all kinds of, you know, things on the email and uh, in my blog and different things. And I understand it's very frustrating. It, it's not a clear picture of how you handle in the church that there are both saints and sinners. And uh, we don't have the balance right. And even when um, there are some punishments doled out, it seems like they're doled out to the most faithful Catholics who really who don't deny any doctrines and just want to worship the way we had for a thousand years. All right, well, I'm, I don't want to get into all the weeds. I just want to say that we need a gospel like this, all right? And I'm going to look at this gospel and also just a couple of other references in Scripture about the question of correction in the church in hopes of not simply resolving this. There are prudential judgments involved, and, you know, as much as we criticize our bishops, we don't get this right in our families either, you know? It's a big problem. We're just not in a kind of a place in our culture where we're able to correct as often as we should in the way we should. It doesn't always mean to be the harshest we need to be, all right? So let's look at what this gospel says and see if we can try to find a better balance hmm? so that um, those who need correction are corrected in the best way possible. And at times we have to be tough, but not always. And that, uh, that the, we, we sort of have an even hand about it. Okay. So here we have then the parable of the saints and the, the ain'ts, so to speak, the wheat and the tares. And I would say we'll look at it in four stages. Um, we need to wake up, we need to wise up, we need to wait up, and then we need to wash up. And that's what we're going to see in this uh, particular parable. So Jesus proposes a parable that we should wake up here. It says, notice it says, The kingdom of heaven may be likened to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And while everyone was asleep, his enemy came and sowed weed all throughout the wheat. And then went off. Now, the key text here I want to see is, first of all, we're going to find out later that the seed, of course, is the kingdom of God or the church, right? Uh, the field, that is. Um, and the seed, of course, being the word of God or the, or the children of God. And then at night, a, an enemy comes and he sows, um, he sows the, um, the weeds. But notice it says, while well, everyone was asleep. Hmm. Okay, now... If you want to find out why the world is in the terrible condition it's in now, you don't need to look much further than your parish churches. You know, this this has happened on our watch. This the, the complete collapse of moral understanding in our culture. It's happened on our watch, and I know it goes back before we were. Some of us were born, but the point is, I've had sixty over sixty two years to deal with this. I've, I've spent 35 of them as a priest, all right? I can't just say, well, somebody else is to blame. All right. We all have a role in this. It says, well, everyone was asleep, an enemy came, and so weeds. Now, you see, we have been much too quiet as a church, but also as parents, as individuals. It's easy to just blame the bishops or blame the church in some institutional sense. There's plenty of blame there. Too many silent pulpits and so on. Too many silent chanceries, etc. All right. But there's also too many silent dinner tables. There's too many parents who don't really know or care what their kids are seeing on the Internet, who are not involved in their kids' life and big moral questions, who kind of shrug and say, well, you know how kids are. Um, or who are fearfully silent parents, who are fearfully silent, or parents who don't have the fortitude to hang in there and, and say, now, this can't, we, this can't be tolerated. See, we're going to have to... See, so there's a lot of this to go around, all right? It isn't just um, one generation or another. Well, that previous generation or this generation, we're all, we're all kind of settled down with a lot of heavy sins. And a lot of Catholics are very fearful today to speak out about stuff. I mean, how did we get to the point where I think even 
Even before the plague, we wouldn't have been talking about letting kids have their genitals lopped off or breasts removed without even parents' permission. But any doctor that would do that to a minor should be sent, in sent to jail. I mean, kids cannot possibly consent. They're not. I mean, how many of us would have dumb ideas when we were teenagers? I mean, it's not the job of adults and certainly the medical community to 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 facilitate this kind of stuff. This this is this has to be resisted. We have to explain to them. No, now once they become adults, there may not be a lot we can do. But I'm just saying to you, it ought to be just simply illegal. And yet, the fact that this is even disputed today is just astonishing. How did we get here? Well, we got here because of us. We just kind of, well, you know, you do you, and you know, I don't want to talk about it, and we just got real quiet while the whole world just kind of went crazy, and uh, we haven't had much to say, and we're afraid. When we do have something to say, we're afraid to say it, see? So while everyone was asleep, while everyone was asleep, all right? So let's not get into lots of fish shaking about how we got here and just try to blame the other guy or the bishops or somebody who's more powerful. Let's accept the fact that we've all been part of this, you know? And that too many parents haven't really sat down to their kids and said, that is not the mind of God. It is not the way you are to think. And I'm going to tell you right now, it can't be tolerated. We can't, we can't put up with that. You have to, and so on. How many parents have really been, you know, and finally, some of them are finally waking up and going to these school boards and saying, you just can't do this. But how long has it taken us? This has been going on for decades, this kind of, you know, crazy stinking thinking. And so you see what I'm saying. Let's, let's before we start going, you know, well, you 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 didn't get this right. You, you know, um, it's something we all have a share. Everyone it says here. Well, everyone, everyone was asleep. The enemy comes, okay, and he just all he's got to do is get us distracted and fighting about stupid stuff that doesn't really matter, you know, and. Um, or that if it does matter, it matters a lot less than other things. You know, one of the deceptions of the devil is to get you all worked up about something you can't do anything about, so that you don't get worked about things you could do something about. So it's not just this. We're not talking about sleep, like going to bed eight hours or whatever. Um, we're talking about moral, morally asleep, right? Morally asleep. So number one, the parable teaches us we've all got to wake up. There is evil. Now the thing we've got to wise up. It says, well, the, well, the crop grew, grew and started to bear fruit, the weeds also appeared. And the slaves, one of the householder, came and they said to him, Master, when did you so, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where did the weeds come from? He answered, an enemy has done this. Hmm. An enemy has done this. See? And he tells us later, that enemy is the devil. We've got to wise up. We've got an enemy. And he's, he hates us. Individually, collectively, he hates us. And he works pretty hard at sowing these wicked weeds all throughout our culture, throughout the church, everywhere he can. And we're asleep. We're kind of sleepy morally. And we're just like, well, that's too much trouble. And um, we, um, we, we let him in or we, we're asleep. And he just comes in. And um, we've got to sober up. We've got to wise up. You know, there is, um, you know, there is a devil. And he exists and he hates us. And he's responsible for most of the trouble that we have in the world. But we can hide with him. Now, the Jesuit superior of the entire world, you know, the head Jesuit guy, recently said, um, there's really no devil, just an allegory. Now, why isn't he corrected? Hmm? The Pope's pretty good on this, you know. Francis talked about the devil a lot. I got news for you. Jesus did not argue in the desert or get tempted by an allegory. All right? He just didn't. 
Uh, he had a real battle with a real angelic person, the fallen angel called you know, the demon Satan, Lucifer. Uh, Jesus never got this memo that he doesn't really exist. And, you know, people go around denying doctrines and teachings that we have right out of the scriptures and so on, and they just get away with it, you see. So that's part of the problem we have today. There aren't vigorous corrections of the record, you see. Many people today outright deny the doctrine of hell or that anybody ever goes there. That's the doctrine of judgment. Brothers and sisters, these are doctrines, and to deny or refute them is to commit heresy. And yet people just routinely get away with this. But if you want to say the Latin Mass, you're in trouble. Okay, I've already, gone, I've already been there. Um, you know, really amazing, truly amazing. And um, so Jesus simply says it plain. Look, an enemy has done this. This, this enemy is Satan. And just, I, I won't develop it much more just simply say, wise up. This Jesuit superior is going to be surprised. He's going to look the devil in the face. He's going to encounter him. And he's going to, it's not an allegory he's going to encounter. Right? He's going to encounter the devil. And I hope not on his way down. I hope before he dies and he can repent of his error. All right. So to wise up, all right, uh, we have to wake up and we have to wise up. And here we come really to the heart of the message. We have to wait up. And this is where comes the bugaboo. What do we do about error in the church? Those who spread error, those who not only lead other people to sin, those who are sinners, public sinners, and yet call themselves proudly Catholic. Uh, what do we do here, you see? And there are some who always want to just hang them high, you know, that kind of a thing. And th there's a there's a balance to be found here, and I want to use, uh, let's see what this parable says, and let's also compare it to a couple of other parables that sort of pull in the other direction. Try to find a balance. It says here, uh, his slave said to the master of the field, do you want us to go pull up the, the weeds? He says, no, no, he replied, you might hurt the wheat if you do that. So let them grow together to the harvest. All right, <clears throat> let them grow together to the harvest. You might harm the wheat. Okay. So, it's not as, uh, it's, it's not as though do nothing at all, but, but there is this uh, call for us to learn to be a little bit patient in dealing with sinners in the church. Um, but there are going to be times when we do have to take more serious action. So this is not the only parable where Jesus deals with sin in the church. So in Matthew 18, for example, uh, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, uh, go tell him about it, you know, as if to correct him or reprove him. Um, and if you won't listen, bring a witness, bring a second witness. If you won't listen to the witness, bring it, bring it to the church. And if you won't even listen to the church, then let him be like a tax collector or a Gentile to you. In other words, let him be cut off. Tell him he can't gather with the community anymore. We're, talking about not a, we're not talking about this ordinary sin, but a, but a serious matter, okay? And uh, so in this case, the Lord says there are going to be times when there's an egregious situation that has to be dealt with what we call today excommunication, where a person is told you cannot gather with us and continue to hold this view or, or take this approach that's uh, violating others or harming other people. We have to ask you to, to separate from us. Now, this is always meant as a medicine, not as just a good be gone. We don't want you. But rather, as a medicine to hope that they'll come to their senses and realize how serious they have um, their situation is. Um, and um, the other parable is similar. It was 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, I can't believe you, Corinthians, uh, tolerating a man among you who lives in incest. 
He's in an incestuous relationship. And you do nothing. You say nothing. And you let him gather with you. He says, look. He says, that is no way. And you call yourself, you know, uh, so holy. Listen. He says, um, here's what you got to do. You got to hand that guy over to Satan. So Satan will beat him up. And maybe he'll come to his senses. You know, in other words, before the day of judgment. So again, it's medicinal. But Paul says, you cannot let him continue to gather in your community and poison your community with this this sin and, and, and with this influence. You've got to tell that guy he's got to go. And that's, that's what he means by hand him over to Satan. And again, it's not like never darken our door. The idea is maybe the guy will come to his senses. So, um, but you've got to deal forcefully with this situation. It's a terrible scandal in your community. And you just go on like, oh, it's no big deal. Listen, you think you're all so holy and high and mighty. You're just, you're tolerating this. What? What's wrong with you? Okay, now. It, it seems, if you read Second Corinthians, there's some evidence that the guy did come to his senses and repented, and he was received back. And Paul has a part of a, the 11th chapter in Second Corinthians where he deals with the, uh, let me say 8th chapter, where he deals with the, um, the, the aftermath. He says, I know what I said was harsh, but look what it's done. It's produced repentance. It's produced, you know, um, and so on. Okay. So it's at least hinted at the guy did come to his senses. Hallelujah. We've won a victory for him here and for us. Because, you see, people go on in the community sinning very publicly and very terribly. You know, not only are they harming their own souls, but they're harming others. You know, whoever winks at a fault, you know, produces trouble, see? And there's too much winking at a fault that goes on. So we have two parables that talk about a fairly severe dealing with a, a situation that's become untenable, and the solution is to be to remove the sinner. Now... But those are, I think, significant situations that come up, uh, that, and we don't do it at all today, almost never. Um, and um, maybe we need to rediscover the medicine. But it's not the first thing we resort to, and that brings us to today's parable that says, wait up. You know, uh, hopefully, maybe you'll understand that we've, not all of us have been parents, but we've certainly all been children. But just think of a parent. Ideally, the parent doesn't rush to the harshest punishment for the first infraction, they'll talk to the kid, they'll reason with the kid, they'll stay in a conversation, and and then maybe there'll be some minor punishments that the kid still struggles to repent, and then only, you know, if it's a very serious matter, and um, that all other things have been tried, will you go to the most severe of, of things? You know, I, I can see a parent, for example, might have to say to one of their adult children, you can't come and stay here anymore, you're just, uh, you're, uh, you're influencing the other kids and the grandchildren, and I, I just can't have you here. You know, your lifestyle, uh, you're, you're coming, you're using drugs, whatever they're doing, you know. Okay, but that's not the first thing you rush to do, right? You know, and um, so the same thing being here, that we have sinners in our midst and we have people who do uh, run into error and even promote error and heresies and they need to be corrected. They're not. Uh, and it gets egregious, but there are ways we can deal with this short of just throwing somebody out um, and... Um, engaging in heavy-handed things, we can take them aside and say, now this isn't uh, what we teach and uh, correct and ask them to correct the record. And um, Or we can take sinners uh, who are like, you know, pro-abortion, very public violators of the teaching on abortion, come into communion and say, no, it's not for you. You need to repent first and explain this. And But that's even that is short of excommunication in the sense that we say you shouldn't be going to communion. But let's keep praying and let's hope you can get to a place where you understand the teaching and you can be in true communion with us and become back to communion. 
But you, you work with, generally you want to work with people and, and, um, and so on. But at a certain point, if things get egregious, those other two parables kick in, right? Where you have to say, well, there's something really serious here, and we've got to deal with this. You know, we've tried every other measure. You don't seem to want to change or repent, and so we're going to have to say, look, you're just not with us anymore. Uh, you do not represent us. You're not promoting our teachings and you can't go on calling yourself a priest or a leader or a catechist or even a Catholic in many cases if you go on talking like this and teaching this in a way that's clearly contrary to our to our teachings. Um, so look at the you know, German bishops' conferences. Whole things are going on today, and these things are just kind of. Uh, and are there any real conversations or corrections of any kind going on? It doesn't seem to be the case. So. This is kind of where we are in the church. Do we have the balance? I don't think so. Do we have to rush to the most severe things? Rip them out, throw them into the sea, you know? No, uh, but we ought to be seeing some corrections going on and, and barring if those things don't have enough effect and the person continues to cause serious harm, we may have to get to the point where, you know, Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 about excommunication have to kick in. But again, what we, where we are today is just passively waiting out people that commit terrible sins and error. They mislead people. They're very often high-ranking church officials, bishops' conferences even, that are talking like this. It's very frustrating, isn't it? But the Lord does say, wait. Uh, now, not in all these cases, but I'm saying that we have to understand that people need time to repent. And we ought not immediately rush to the um, most severe measures. And I think that's the best way we can find the balance. We do need to have ongoing correction. Sometimes it's just a, an innocent error that a person makes in, their, in something they say about church teaching. Sometimes it's, um, uh, it, it's less innocent. Than it needs. But either way, correction is needed. And then some reproof of a person says, well, I think the church is wrong, or I think this newer teaching, or the church needs to change, or you know, fill in the blank. Then we can start saying to them, well, you see, this is a matter of received doctrine. We can't, and you need to stop talking like this and if you do we might have to you know censure you if you're a church official or we might have to engage in some kind of corrective actions publicly against you you know and you you kind of work through the stages see and um so simply ripping out the weeds and throwing them into the trash isn't always the first solution here so the lord counsels a kind of a prudence caution a wisdom staying in a longer conversation and so on all right but there are there are going to be times where Let's not forget the other parables either, all right? You know, you can tend to make, the danger is you take one scripture and make it all a scripture. And, um, you, know, you know, Jesus did not brook a lot of foolish, and at one point he had to say, get behind me, even to the head of the church, get behind me. Hmm? And calls him Satan, Woo, ouch. So get behind me, you know, even Jesus. So you see what I'm saying, you know, this idea that, oh, Jesus would never come back. Even, that's just not true, all right? All right, well, I'm, I'm going on too long. It's time for me to wrap up. But we come to the last stage, and this is where it starts to get personal. Okay, so look, we, we, we certainly need to wake up because hmm, Satan's busy. We need to wise up because Satan, because Satan. And you can't deny him. You can deny him, but he's, he just has a good laugh in your face. Um, he's having a good laugh over people who deny his existence. Wait up. There is this call to be patient with sinners and sin in the church and imperfections. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't carefully work in lesser ways, of, other ways than total removal, but we should continue to work to correct the sinner. 
and then we have to wash up. This comes the final stage. Then in harvest time, I'm going to say to the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles for burning, and I'll gather the wheat into my barn. He goes on to say, I'm going to throw the weeds in the fire. There's going to be wailing and grinding of teeth. See, See, they're going to answer. Unrepentant sinners are going to answer to the Lord. So there's a day of judgment, but not yet. But there is a day of judgment. And so it starts with us. Wash up. Get ready. Just be sober about that. You know, we can always point to somebody else being a worse sinner, but sometimes we don't want to look at our own stuff. And um, so we've got to wash up ourselves. We need to ourselves be, allow ourselves to be corrected. We need to be, you know, you know, we need to try our very best to wash up for the sins that we know are causing us to be held back. And then, of course, uh, we need to, uh, having gotten the plank out of our eye, help our brother with the splinter in his eye, but we need to wash up first ourselves, but then we need to call others to wash up. Call them to repentance, you see, and there's just not enough of this today in the church. So I'm repeating myself. How do you find the balance? I don't know. I don't have a mathematical formula. Um, but I do know that we don't get this right today at any level. It's not just a church problem. You know, it's in our culture, too. Um, you know, look, the woke left, they're, they're severely punitive. Bake me a cake, you bigot. I'll see you in court, you see. Is right now actually a law being pushed through in Congress uh, by uh, by one of the parties that's basically going to say that all federal documents need to remove any mention of husband or wife, um, you know, mother or father, and all these, you know, really, see. You know, whatever happened to you, do you, and, you know, just let, let leave people alone, and, you know, it's none of your business. Uh, well, now all of a sudden it becomes all of our business because we literally have to change our language to accommodate this stuff. And no, we don't. And I, I don't think that bill is going to go anywhere, at least I hope not. But I'm telling you right now, this is the kind of stuff, you know, that goes on when we never correct. But I will say, so they're, they're out there punitively correcting on the left. But, you know, for the most of us, like, well, I don't want to upset anybody. And I don't know. And priests are up there, silent pulpits, and they're kind of hiding out. And But so are parents and grandparents. So are... Elders and older siblings who should be correcting younger, you know, it's just a lot of hiding out going on. And um, the Lord does talk about, he says, there is a day of judgment, but not yet. So patiently work with one another. You don't have to go to the most severe answers all the time. In fact, you should do it only rarely. But when you do, make sure you've done it after these other, but do it. Correct. And we're going to have another gospel coming up in a couple Sundays about uh, the need for the correction of the sinner, fraternal correction which is an act of charity. All right, so we're all heading for Judgment Day, y'all. Look at the length of this. This is a 30-minute sermon. Are you even still with me? Is anyone still listening? Are you out there? <laughs> if you stay to the end, God bless you. God bless you. So look, I don't run a perfect parish. Most of you don't run perfect families. So we're all in this mess together, all right? And um, it's easy to blame the bishops in the church. It's easy to blame somebody else. But at the end of the day, all of us, Need to wash up a little, get our own act together, and then find the proper balance of balancing correction and the need for it with patience and waiting for the harvest. But we got to do it, and we're not doing it very well right now. So, Lord, help us all. Help us and have mercy on us, and keep us, Lord, always in your holy grace. Amen.